Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. Disclosure is a word in the lexicon of every family law lawyer and mediator, of every family law judge, because sooner or later, fulsome disclosure is required in just about every case involving a separation. And with concerning frequency, it can present a problem. Sometimes the cause of the problem is someone's deliberate inaction or even obstruction, as in their refusal to produce documentation the law obligates them to produce. But importantly, sometimes disclosure can be a problem simply because the person expected to produce it does not understand what is involved, how to do it, and in what format. We tackle both of those scenarios today. My guest is someone who has a lot of experience with disclosure. And while all family law lawyers do, he has taken his interest in this important subject a couple of steps further. My guest is Shmuel Stern. Yes, a family law lawyer, but also the founder of Disclosure Clinic, a very original and much needed family law limited scope legal service focusing on, you guessed it, disclosure. I'm going to include the website address for Disclosure Clinic in the episode notes. I am a fan of Schmoles. There is no doubt about that. Why? Because he's an excellent family law lawyer, but also someone who thinks outside the box. And I'm particularly drawn to such people and their unconventional ways of looking at the world and opportunities to help others. Shmuel and I also took some of our mediation training together, so I've seen his skills in that context as well, and here too I am impressed. If you'd like to learn more about Family Law Limited Scope Services, have a listen to my interview with Janice Ho and Lucia Lamb. 
which dropped on October 9, 2020. That entire episode is devoted to the subject, and I hope explains why I'm such a big fan of the concept and why I believe that it offers a very practical and viable alternative to many Ontarians for obtaining legal services even on a limited budget. And now, here's my dialogue with Schmoll. I enjoyed it immensely. As you know, dear listeners, as you know already from the introduction, uh, today I'm speaking with my colleague, a fellow family law lawyer and mediator, Schmoll Stern. Happy Hanukkah, Schmoll. Uh, Schmoll, tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Schmoll, tell us a bit about yourself so my listeners appreciate why I thought you would be ideal to discuss with me today the following topics, disclosure in family law, limited scope legal services, and your incredible service through your brainchild disclosure clinic. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Uh, so I've been practicing family law. It's day by day. And as you know, you turn around and the years go by. I've been for about approaching 18 years already. I worked in a number of firms in Toronto. I recently took a sabbatical to earn an LLM in family law. And now I'm on my own through the Disclosure Clinic website. I've tried to use my knowledge in family law for good. <laughs> I've been presenting a number for many years uh, at the Toronto Mandatory Information uh, presentation for litigants in the Toronto Superior Court. I have been a longtime member of the Ontario Bar Association, and I've also helped some institutions such as schools navigate themselves dealing with their clients uh, on family law issues. More recently, I just started this uh, Disclosure Clinic website and practice and looking forward to continuing it. Uh, Shmuel, you said that you tried to use your knowledge for good. That is definitely the case. I can say that uh, with great confidence. Uh, we family law lawyers in Ontario benefit greatly from your review, your daily review of recent family law cases, the ones that are generated by family law courts, and that is exceedingly helpful to us. So on behalf of my colleagues in the family law bar, uh, we appreciate that very much. Our topic for today is essentially disclosure and the services you provide in connection with it. So let's unpack the world of disclosure a little bit in the family law context. And perhaps we can begin by talking about it first in general, macro, big picture terms, and then we can get more specific as we go along. So the first question, which we might characterize as a threshold question, what is disclosure? And maybe you can provide some examples from a typical family law file schmool as you explain the concept. Sure. So, you know, if I were to give a textbook definition of disclosure, I would say it's relevant evidence to determining legal financial issues. And I could probably break that down into components, but I think on a more uh, more human level, <laughs> looking at at this issue, so imagine two people 
unfortunately their relationship ends and they each go to a lawyer and one of them says to their lawyer i really need or want money from my other from what's called spouse uh whether they're married or not and the other person goes to their lawyer and says i know that the that my spouse is going to be going to a lawyer and or not but they're going to be seeking money from me and i don't want to pay that money those are the two extremes somebody wants money somebody doesn't want to pay the money and if i were the lawyer for each which i can't be for each but i'm just saying if i were a lawyer uh that they had come to i would say i'll make you a deal i'm going to tell you law but you need to give me facts and the two will be putting together almost like a jigsaw puzzle there's probably better analogies but together with the law and the facts we can come to a result and that result may be that one spouse will be receiving money maybe not as much as they had expected maybe one spouse will be paying money maybe not as little as they had hoped <laughs> right and so really what disclosure is is the facts uh that are relevant to the issues of what they want to discuss so i'll give you a fact that nobody is asking me or that i'm not asking them what is your bowling average right that is not relevant to family law but it's a fact and in family law we break things down into major legal issues and then within those major legal major legal issues are minor legal issues and the disclosure are the facts that will address per issue so just as an example the very simple example is for ch- child support and in ontario if you want to receive child support or if you have an obligation to pay child support there is the law called the child support guidelines and on a very simple level there's a chart the chart requires two inputs the number of children and the uh, income of the payor so what is the disclosure there could be disclosure with respect to the child and whether they're entitled to child support especially if they are 18 or over um but focusing more on the more simpler case we need to know what the person who's going to be paying support what their income is and so that would usually involve uh on the big picture would be their tax return what they're telling revenue canada what their income is their notice of assessment which confirms that they told revenue canada what their income is and then depending on the nature of their income that set out in their tax return or even if they got something new new circumstances after filing that tax return we would want to know if they're employed they uh, a pay stub or two their t4 their employment contract if they are self employed we want to get a little bit more uh, uh, what we would call granular to want to know to understand what their gross income is and the expenses that they are deducting from that gross income to arrive at the net income that they are uh, reporting to CRA so that's that's typically how i look at disclosure is first you have to figure out what the legal issue is and then you apply the relevant information um i i would just extend the answer a little bit just to say that some information is required black and white from the law the child support guidelines actually 
provides a list of disclosure. As you dig down into the information, it may be that further information or documentation is needed. I think that's a terrific way of approaching the explanation more. I think it's helpful for the listeners to understand that there is the law and there are the facts. And uh, you've explained that and also touched on the concept of evidence a little bit. So you've moved from the macro picture, which is at the very basic level, it's proving your income automatically based on the guidelines. And then if you have a unique way of earning your income or if questions arise out of what you have provided, then you have a further obligation to flesh out in further detail so that I'm adding uh, my comment here. I, I try to explain to clients this way, the other side and the decider who may be a judge or an arbitrator, for example, needs the disclosure to be able to understand the issue and to make a decision about it if they are the decision maker. Am I on the right track, Shmuel? I would actually pull you back a little from the uh, precipitous <laughs> and say, I, me as your lawyer, and you as a client need to know this information so you know the answer that's that's going to be coming like the legal conclusion and it's most most issues other than the most basic child support claim require information from both spouses in order to make the total picture known for the, to to come to a conclusion um, and this applies whether you're in court, certainly, um, but even if you're not even in court, you're not even in mediation or arbitration, you're not in zero process. If you are just trying to figure out your legal issues, you need to have the basic information in order to do so. And as a lawyer, because uh, that's <laughs> how I have to approach it, I can't give advice or I can't give good advice without the pertinent facts that fit into the puzzle uh, in order to determine what uh, what direction or th what amount the 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 financial issues are going to be resolved at. You're absolutely right. I skipped a step because obviously, absolutely correctly, you pointed this out. The first person that needs to understand the relationship between the law, which is what their lawyer advises them on, and the facts is the client himself or herself. So at the very first step, you're absolutely right. This disclosure is important for the party producing it. And I, I skipped that step and went straight to the decider or the negotiations. You know, th there's a lot of anxiety when people separate. And it's probably the purest form of anxiety because it comes from uncertainty. What's going to be? What has been is no longer the case and what is going to be, I need to be able to plan. Most people can't even plan at the initial stages, but they just want to under they just want to know where they're going. And on the, you know, in the back of their head, they also don't want to be taken for a ride. They don't, you know, they want to get in an Uber, but they want to know what the destination is. And unfortunately, many times we don't know until we have basic documentation to figure out um, the legal issues.
based on those facts. Um, so I appreciate the anxiety that people start with. And yeah, I would agree with you that it's the it starts with the person themselves. They they ought to know not just what the where they're going, but they need to know what they're fighting over. So many people say I'm fighting over child support, but really they're not. Really, they're actually fighting over the deductions that their spouse is making on their uh, self-employment income, and they think it's unfair that they're getting away with paying for vacations as travel expenses uh, and not paying using that money towards child support. So it's a very <laughs> you want to know what you're fighting over and whether it's reasonable that you can fight over that. And the answer to that question is, yes, it is reasonable to look into that kind of expense and see whether it's really, truly uh, business related or not. Uh, Shmuel, when we chatted in preparation for this dialogue, you had some interesting ideas about discussing disclosure from different perspectives. So perhaps we can talk about this from a typical family law client's point of view. Yeah, absolutely. I think clients would benefit, people going through the process would benefit from understanding two or three of, of the following points that, frankly, I don't see explained enough and it's part of what I do. The, the first thing you need to understand about disclosure is that there's actually three components to disclosure. The first one is just information. And information, and a good example of information is that is actually your tax return. Like your tax return is not what you earn. The tax return is a piece of paper or electronically that you tell CRA what you earn. Right? It's, it's almost like a shadow of the real thing. The real thing is the money that's sitting in your bank account from your income. Um, so, th so that's basic information. And in the family law context, that will show up on the financial statement form. And there are two different financial statement forms, depending on the legal issues that you have to deal with. And it is important. You know, I actually had a, a client recently who came to me with the wrong form that was provided to them by their spouse's lawyer, <laughs> which was somewhat um, disconcerting. But um, you have to start with giving information that is asked of you on the form. And that's part number one. Number two, the second uh, layer of uh, financial disclosure is documentation. So the easiest way to say this is you will be audited on your financial statement. And what is an audit? An audit is providing the backup or supporting documentation that proves that the information that you put on the financial statement is true. <laughs> But that's a key component. And, you know, if you look at the financial statement, it actually asks you to provide documentation that doesn't tell you where to put it, which I find is actually very problematic. But th that documentation needs to be collected. And lastly, the information and the documentation need to be collated. And collated means, in some sense, linked to each other. Usually, or more, more recently, I should say, in family law, uh, the courts themselves have instituted the uh, financial disclosure certificate, uh, which is a form, and it lists the, the pieces of paper that you have collected. So that's a form of collation. Uh, for my clients, I do this electronically. You can actually click on the form and find the document uh, quite easily. I want to just quickly go to my, ne my next point that I think is really key here is from the client's perspective is that we fill out a lot of forms in our lives. 
especially in the internet age, we are very form centric. Uh, and if you think of the easiest form that you fill out, AJ, what is the easiest form that you fill out? On the internet? Yes. Well, when I'm online shopping and I'm filling out my credit card information. Uh, absolutely. Exactly. You know, we, you know, we had a conversation before, but we did not discuss this. And that's exactly the answer that I was hoping you would give. So thank you. Yeah, a credit card form. And so what's the, uh, what happens if you miss a digit or you put in the wrong digit? Your it transaction says... gets declined. Correct. That's right. Um, but that's a pretty low... That's a pretty low ramification for doing something wrong, right? In other words, you'll just try again until you get it right. Hopefully the shoes I was hoping to buy in the particular size won't be gone by the time I re-enter my credit card information. So that would be additional punishment. But yes, the <laughs> uh, initial punishment uh, that you identify as in transactions not completed is absolutely a low, low level of punishment for entering one digit wrong or missing it. That's right. Okay, now, so let's think about the most complicated form we usually fill out, which is the tax return, right? Uh, most people, or I won't say most people, I can't give uh, statistics, but many people go to an accountant to fill out that form. It's so complicated. Um, and to get advice on how to fill out that form, right? But, but I, I don't want to even talk about the advice part. I want to talk about the ramification of getting information wrong. and and. I think you would agree that the ramification is that CR there's a risk, it's not always, that CRA will audit you, ask you for backup information. And if you don't provide sufficient information, they'll likely give you a penalty for underpaying taxes um, and interest. And sometimes that could be a lot. Sometimes it's just uh, annoying. Um, but that's the ramification for filling out a, uh, a tax return wrong. I mean, I think there could be criminal <laughs> at some level, but that's that's already going a, a, a little too advanced. So those are the two extremes, I would say, for filling out forms. Now, the family law financial statement, I want to tell you, is completely on a totally different level than either of those two. It's on, it's on a different spectrum completely. Uh, and AJ, you might be surprised for me to say this because it's a little bit absolute absolutist. <laughs> But if you complete the financial statement 100% correctly as asked, you can still find yourself in litigation over what you put in. Um, I don't, I don't think it's absolutist. I mean, you and I have experienced situations. I think it's a very important point you make. Both you and I have experienced situations as family law lawyers where we did, we thought we did pretty good financial statements for our clients and at questioning which is for the listeners an exercise which many of you may have heard described as depositions in the United States. That's where uh, we sit in a room, one of the clients is there with their lawyer and the other lawyer asks them questions under oath and the whole exercise is recorded just like Bill Clinton was deposed uh, when he was president. So yeah, I mean, there are different uh, there are different ways of representing things in the financial statement. Do you agree with that, Shmuel? Definitely. I, there's also there's information that is not asked for that will be asked for later that nobody may tell you that will be asked for later. So I'll give you one or two examples 
that are very typical, unfortunately, because we kind of haven't learned <laughs> that this repeats over and over. So the one I like is that on page two, it asks you your, your sources of employment. And one of them is that I'm unemployed. Great. Um, and so you put, you put a little X by that and it asks you if, you know, if you put that checkbox, how long or since when have you been unemployed? And you put that date, you say May, 2019, just making that up. And that's it. And then you move on and you don't realize or you're not told until you get that letter from the other side or their lawyer asking for more information. Well, why are you unemployed and what's your education and what's your work experience and what's your prospects for becoming reemployed? And if you don't give me that information, I'm going to assume that you're purposely under unemployed. And there's a lot of mistrust that is built simply from that letter, that letter that you receive asking that information that probably should have been provided bef- like when you filled out the form in the first place. And that is a huge issue because trust is the bread and butter of family law. And if you can't trust the information that's provided to you, then how can you come to a conclusion based on that information? The other very common example, and I say this with some exasperation, is regarding uh, self-employment income. You know, the form says, what is your gross income? It actually says, you know, on number two on the list, what's your gross income? And then what's your net income, right? But after expenses. And that space between those two little boxes of gross and net is where I, I can't put a percentage on it, a good minority of family law litigation, like put, pushing people into court is over that space between gross and net. And the form, you filled it out. You filled it out exactly as you were asked to fill it out, likely copying the information that you already put gave CRA the year before. And you're just raising your hand saying, I gave the information you asked me for. Why are you picking on me? <laughs> and so I, just coming back from the client's perspective, they're going through a separation. They we can appreciate the anxiety. They are probably focused, if there are children, on children's issues. And they are handed a form to fill out. And let's assume that people want to fill it out correctly. So unfortunately, even if you do, you need to know there's more information that's going to be asked for you. And part of what I do is tell you that now at the very beginning so you can put it in now into the financial statement before you're even asked. So you don't need to get that letter saying, hey, we want more information. You and I are very much aligned in that respect because I also front load. I don't view uh, completing a financial statement as an exercise and simply handing the form to the client and sending them off into the horizon to figure out what's in there. I actually have a very long set of instructions that go along with the form. I have to admit not many people read the instructions and I can tell that they don't based on the questions they then ask. This is not a criticism. I I completely agree with you. This is a very difficult time in many people's lives. But there is a reason we ask these questions and there is a reason we have instructions and there is a reason you offer the service and we'll talk about it more detail shortly what Disclosure Clinic is. Because based on our experience, you and I can anticipate 
what questions will be asked. And you might as well answer those questions up front. So you avoid those pesky letters going back and forth at added cost, which irritate people very much and which are unnecessary if you provide the information ahead of time. So uh, you and I are absolutely on the same page about this. I just want to go back briefly to the word audit, uh, because we use the word audit in two different situations, and I want to make sure that our listeners understand the difference. When you are asked to provide backup documentation for the entries in your financial statement, you're being asked not by CRA. The word audit is often used by the public uh, to denote an investigation by the CRA. So in the first instance, when you talked about uh, having an obligation to backup what you entered in your, to your financial statement, that's not a CRA audit. In the second example, it was because you were talking about perhaps filling uh, an income tax return inaccurately, whether it's deliberate or uh, completely innocent. You agree? Capital A audit and lowercase Correct. audit. Agree. Correct. Of course, for us family law lawyers and mediators, disclosure is our daily bread and butter. Perhaps with a dash of cayenne pepper on it from time to time. Because we're the ones who are tasked with managing both our own clients' challenges with disclosure, but also with reacting to difficulties in obtaining it from the opposing side. It's those challenges I'm talking about when I refer to the dash of cayenne pepper. And of course, when someone is representing themselves... Uh, they face those tasks, including the challenges on their own. Uh, Shmuel, give us your thoughts, please, about disclosure from the lawyer's perspective. Yeah, so this is a difficult to uh, topic for me because it kind of uh, leads into where I created Disclosure Clinic. And so I want to let the, the listeners in on a terrible, dirty secret of family law. So you see, earlier this year, there was a court of appeal decision that came out and the uh, facts are not so relevant, but just in the middle of the, in the middle of the decision, the court reiterated a common theme that we hear about disclosure saying that failure to provide financial disclosure is the cancer of family law. And, you know, it's interesting when you use metaphors you know, if, it, if it's truly, there's no cure for cancer. So maybe there's no cure for disclosure, right? I, I, so I, I want to dispute that. But I, I looked at, I, I give that a lot of thought. And I actually looked up the court case that the court was quoting when it said the disclosure was the cancer of family law or the lack of it. So this this 2020 case was referring to a 2006 Supreme Court case. So I, so I went to that court case and the Supreme Court case was actually referring to a previous court case where that term was used. And that case was in 1994. So we've been using the same concept of cancer being the metaphor for lack of financial disclosure for, let's do some math, 26 years. It's a long time, longer than I've been practicing. Um, and you have to think about how we've been trying to treat this cancer, if you want to call it that. And I, again, I, um, I take some, 
I take some pause before I I would use that as a metaphor. How have we been addressing the lack of disclosure when people don't give disclosure? And so the answer is, I'm going to use some legal terms that some of the listeners may recognize, some may not. And I'm not going to go into too much detail, but we, the court, when this comes in front of a court, the court would often uh, impose costs or fines against the party who's not providing disclosure. The court has the ability to impute income to those who don't provide disclosure as a very extreme remedy. The court can strike pleadings, which is basically saying you're no longer involved in your own case because you're not playing by the rules. And most recently in the case that I was uh, starting with, uh, the court said, we're going to create, we're going to be able to use in family law something called the tort of conspiracy, which is to pull in other people around around you uh, if they're involved in the lack of disclosure. And we've also, in these 26 years, have uh, created many, many rules about providing disclosure. There's a whole rule number 13 in our family law rules. And it's very interesting if you think of the psychology of all of these different remedies that we've been trying to do for disclosure. (laughs) And, And we're kind of like, we're kind of like poor parents poor parenting because when a child says no i'm not going to get off the phone let's just say okay so you have what, what do you have as uh, your toolbox in parenting you can say go to your room well that's striking pleadings um, i'm going to take away your phone that is costs i had a cue one for imputing but now i can't think of it <laughs> uh, you can't have a play date with your friend. That's sort of conspiracy, right? Think, think about it. These are just, these are parenting 101 that work in the short term, but they do not work in the long term. All of those ways of dealing with, with behavior. And at the source of that, uh, at the source of it is the parent believing that the child is trying to control them, right? The parent says, do this, right? And the child says, no, I will not do this. That is non-disclosure, right? And... If you take a big step back and you read a couple of parenting books, you learn that the long-term way of treating, you know, of helping your child is to provide information at the beginning before the incident even happens to say, listen, you have a phone, it's a responsibility, and you're going to have a limited amount of time, and when you get off the phone, you're going to be able to do this. I'm giving you an alternate activity to do and so when i tell you your time is up you know exactly what to do all the tension has just drained away positive uh, positive effect and we've so we we've been dealing with this on the negative and it and we could see as lawyers we can see it doesn't work because we continue to talk about it right and you think about it why is there no turbo tax for financial disclosure like there is for filling out a form and so this project of mine actually started as a software project, and I do have uh, some technical ability, but I realized that we as an industry are very slow in, ad- in taking, on new, taking on new technology as uh, COVID actually kind of proved the point in reverse, kind of have to be forced into technology. And, and, I, and, and people do need the human touch to be able to explain to them why they're doing what they're doing. But the dirty secret of family law is that not only is do those things not work in the long term, um, and they certainly 
don't address the issue for the next clients. They, you know, you're, it's addressing the person in front of the court at that time, but it's not addressing the next person is that there's a trickle down effect and disclosure in a typical family case has now become its own issue. And lawyers know this. And, you know, there's an old saying, if the laws are, if the law's not on your side, argue the facts. And if the facts are not on your side, argue the law. And in 2020 family law in Ontario, whether the law is on your side, whether the facts are on your side, you are going to also argue lack of disclosure. It is now like typical. It is, it is part and parcel of our practice that we claim, oh, you didn't fill out this box on the form. You didn't provide this piece of paper. I'm going to say you failed to provide financial disclosure and you've done so deliberately. And therefore, I'm going to tell you I'm threatening a motion, a court hearing, to have you ha- get costs against you. Or I'm going to threaten that you should have income imputed to you or strike pleadings. All those things that we have been using as tools are now, even the rules, are used as threats in our day-to-day practice. And it, so <sighs> just fast forwarding about five years ago, I, I came to this realization and I was sitting at my desk with a client and I had the financial statement. It was a paper financial statement and I handed it over and I said, okay, you're going to fill this out. And then I took it back and I said, you know, I can't, I can't do it. I know I'm setting you up for failure if I just hand you this form to fill out and say, do it yourself. Um, you know, we, I said before about people go to accountants for tax returns, right? <laughs> you're nodding your head. You're like, I know this. <laughs> people go to accountants and when they, when CRA comes after them, they say, but my, my accountant told me I could do it, right? Okay, typical, right? Let me tell you, you can't do that with a lawyer. We know how to protect ourselves. We will be the first person to distance ourselves from our own clients if you try to pull that one on us. No, this financial statement is your facts. It's your life. And if you can't complete this correctly, sorry. Sorry, it's on you. And by the way, we have very limited tools to help you to uh, filling it out completely. Um, although you can you can go to a lawyer who will have to know everything about your case and then they can give it give the file to a law clerk who will then give it back to the lawyer and then again it, it will go out into the other side to the other side and if it's not 100% accurate, it's on you, it's not on us. So that's I, I would say that is the dirty secret of family law that we, set our clients up for failure in some extent and we the form itself creates the litigation even if you fill it out correctly and (laughs) i'm saying this and i'm frustrated just saying it Um, and i think the solution if you wanted to get straight to the solution is that we have to stop treating the 80 percent of people and that's my my round majority number of people who don't know how to fill out a financial statement correctly with the 20% who truly do not want to provide disclosure. There are those people. There's a reason why there's court to compel disclosure. And there's a reason, there's a time and place for those parental, you know, uh, costs and imputing and striking. There's a place for that. But that's not, that should not be the norm. We should be helping and supporting people through the process before it ever leaves the client's uh, you know, before it ever gets to the other uh, side to look at.
So using the cancer metaphor with which both you and I are clearly a bit uncomfortable, this cancer of non-disclosure uh, keeps metastasizing. And uh, I'm thinking you and I may have a discussion in a different forum about what to do about it in from a legal perspective and uh, where uh, some of the responsibility lies on the side of lawyers perpetuating some of this litigation. That's a different issue. But I love your distinction. And we talked about this in our prep discussion. I love your distinction between people who do not provide adequate disclosure because they don't understand how to do it, they don't understand what's expected of them, and their non-disclosure is, in a sense, unwitting, innocent. And those who deliberately refuse to provide disclosure, which they are obligated to provide by the law. I think that's a that's a very wise distinction, and it gives some it gives more people than we generally do a benefit of a doubt. Because you're absolutely right, we lawyers see a financial statement, and some box was ticked off incorrectly. And I think everyone's default response is that was a deliberate omission. There is some reason they misrepresented here or didn't fill it out properly. But you're giving more people a benefit of a doubt. And it sounds to me like your brainchild, the disclosure clinic, one of the things you do is help people understand why they're making disclosure, what they're expected to produce, and how to do it properly. So great segue to the disclosure clinic. Uh, I was going to ask you what, how you came up with the idea, but I think your discussion about the different case law, the cases you referred to earlier, and your practical frustration with the issue of disclosure in your life as a lawyer, I think has answered that question, at least partially. Is there something you'd like to add on this subject? Yeah, one last thing I would add is, uh, I think Einstein is quoted by saying that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and not learning from your mistake. And um, I, I feel like if what I have to add to this entire conversation is that I, I have seen the mistake and I'm trying to prevent it from recurring. So tell us directly, Shmuel, please. What is Disclosure Clinic all about? What is it that you do? What kind of services do you provide? So Disclosure Clinic is a limited scope service, which means we do only one thing. <laughs> a limited scope can be doing many different one things, but Disclosure Clinic does one thing only, and that is helping people provide their financial disclosure. Um, and as you had mentioned before, it starts with a little bit of education. Everybody comes at a different point in their separation uh, with their disclosure issues. Some people have just received their financial statement and don't know where to start. They're overwhelmed by it. Some people have already done their financial statement and have received that letter and don't know when it will end. And they would like to put some kind of circle around the issue to understand what their obligations are. Many people come to me from mediation, starting off a mediation. And they said, you know, I asked my mediator how to fill out the form they could provide it to me. And the mediator said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. So I went on the internet <laughs> to find information 
And I really don't know what the answer to this question. I just, I'll give you an example. I have this on my website actually, that a very typical claim for somebody who is employed, they'll say, you know, I, I work overtime or I get an annual bonus. And I don't think it's fair that I should be paying in 2020 or now that we're getting to the end of the year in 2021 based on a bonus that I may or may not get in 2021 that I got in 2020. And you know, that's a great question. Is it fair? But, but really the question is, is there a legal argument? And the answer is there is a legal argument. There is case law, which means other people have argued this issue already. And there has been an opinion by a judge which sets out a list of considerations as to whether it is quote unquote unfair or fair. And I, as Disclosure Clinic, will help you with those questions, answering those questions in your financial statement so that you can later say within mediation, it's unfair and here's the reasons why and here's the paper that demonstrates why and the other side can understand why you're asking what you're asking and you've provided it all up front. You know, the flip side to that is the people who are unfortunately caught in litigation and they get to trial and they say, hey, it's unfair. And the judge says, I don't have enough information from you to determine whether it's fair or unfair. They get, you know, think of all the litigation and all the steps to get up to the trial. And the judge says, if you want to say the fairness argument, well, there, I need more information. And the person says, fairness. <laughs> they keep, keep saying it's unfair, it's unfair, but where's the information? Now imagine if that was your financial statement at the beginning. Um, and even if you didn't know that issue, like you, even if you didn't bring it up, I'll bring it up because when I see bonus, I say, is this going to be an issue or not? And they'll, and sometimes people say, no, it's not an issue. I got a pretty uh, good job and it's pretty consistent. Um, and some people say, yeah, no, this might very well be an issue. The mediation is actually a, 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 another good thing to think about, which is, you know, when we compare court with not in court, um, there are a lot of other forms that people fill out in court that that can be a space to put th those kinds of that kind of information that is not on your financial statement, and that doesn't exist in mediation. In fact, I would say that in mediation, there's only one form, which is the financial statement. If you really think about it, right, that people submit. So your financial statement actually takes uh, probably even a bigger role in mediation than it does in any other context. Many people go to mediation without lawyers, and that's a choice, which uh, I, I can understand. And they need that support. They need the support of having a piece of paper that explains their situation so that they don't have to vocalize it themselves or they know how to vocalize it that basically is what disclosure clinic is it's uh, identifying the legal issues in your particular circumstances and addressing them upfront in your financial statement and helping you collect the information the documentation and helping you collate it put it all together as a nice package so that all the questions have already been answered uh, before they're even asked and so a T4 employee who works at a factory and may not get a bonus shouldn't get the impression that you can't help him or her. You provide services to a range of clients, people who have fairly complex ways of earning their income, but also people who are 
uh, filling out uh, a financial statement, as we say, at first instance, meaning at the beginning of the case. I'm understanding that correctly, Schmoll. I would not discount the your quote unquote typical T4 employee looking, you know, as you said before, the way lawyers look at a financial statement is different than the, the client. And I take a look at a pay stub and I don't just see income. I see a possible deduction for union dues that will reduce your income for support purposes. I can see the bank account into which your money is going into that needs to go onto your financial statements on the property side. I see a possible pension that needs to be valued. There's an insurance policy that is being paid as a deduction. Uh, Very commonly, somewhat shockingly, when people are putting together their property list, whether on the complex form or on the simple form, they can easily forget that their employer has their own savings program that they pay into. And there's a whole account there that is showing up as a deduction on a pay stub, but they don't think about because they don't see it on a day-to-day basis. It's not, it's not the same as their regular bank account. And then when that doesn't show up on, a, on the financial statement and the other side says, but wait, you're not disclosing, right? Was that intentional? Was it negligent? Uh, the answer is, Part of my job is to catch that for you, to look at your pay stub, even the simple, quote unquote, T4 uh, employee, and uh, catch all of the little issues so that you don't even have that issue of missing it. You're right, Schmoll. I was oversimplifying. One point I thought we would emphasize, you and I, is that disclosure in a family law case is required whether the case is in court or not. And number two, that disclosure is an ongoing process. In other words, in a typical family law case, a financial statement is likely to be sworn more than once over time. Do you, Would you want to comment on that a little bit? The answer is yes, but it doesn't have to be. So sometimes it's necessary. So I'll give you a very basic example. We're just talking about the employee who has a pension. Very often, the support issues need to be dealt with more sooner than, or more urgently, I'm trying to avoid the word urgent, but more urgently than the property issues. And so you may not have your pension valued in time to discuss the uh, the support issues. Um, And so your income information is more important than your pension information. So very often people will complete the financial statement and put a place a placeholder for the pension valuation and to come back to it. And yeah, they'll have to re-swear a financial statement in order to in- include the new information once they have it. That, that's that's on the simple side. That that happens very often. On the 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 more complex side is when people don't provide financial disclosure appropriate financial disclosure that they can provide. And then you get into the letters and you get into the court orders to chase for this disclosure. It doesn't just cost money and emotional and trust, right? And all that. It costs time. And very often you will find that over a period of a of, of a of a typical family law file, it's gonna go into new years. And you haven't really resolved 2019 in 2020 having 2019 information, and then you start getting into 2021 
looking to 2020. And certainly with COVID, the very arguments about income change. Like the, the, the arguments are different because the 2019 income may be arguing about the nature of expenses that are being deducted. I'm just using that as an example. But the 2020 income is going to be all about COVID and that the gross has gone down. And the parties are going to be, the, 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 the payor is going to be saying, I can't pay you anymore. <laughs> I have no money. Uh, for who, You're fighting last year's battle kind of thing, but look at this year. And not, not in the odd case, the 2021 argument starts talking to 2022, right? And during all this time, some of the information, once you have it, such as the date of separation and the date of marriage values for the family law equalization calculation, if you're married, that will stay the same. But very often, the income and even the expenses may change over time. And then you have to revisit the financial statement. And the issue then becomes, for lawyers, is taking a look at the various financial uh, statements and saying, hey, your story is not adding up. You're saying your income has gone down in 2020, but look, you now have a new car and you have... You took this trip because you're saying on your form that your vacations have gone up, right? And so the arguments just increase over time. They don't decrease. They don't get avoided. They just increase. Um, And so, yes, it is very possible that you will have to be filing multiple financial statements. And it's very important to look at the new financial statement in context of the prior financial statement to make sure that your story is actually uh, making sense. So if your story about your income is not consistent and there is then a lifestyle analysis, in other words, the opposing lawyer says, hey, you're living in a mortgage-free house, but you're saying you're making $30,000 a year, the way to avoid that or one way to avoid that is to do it properly in the first place, make sure the story is consistent, to front load, and to provide an explanation up front about a lot of the entries that you're making in your financial statement. Do you agree with that, Shmuel? Yeah, and, and to say it in the, in the non-lawyer way is to say that that lawyer is saying, I don't trust you. I don't trust what you are telling me, what you are putting on a piece of paper. And the legal way of saying it is, you are not credible. I think you had mentioned that in one of your prior podcasts, because I have been listening <laughs> avidly uh, to this podcast about credibility. And people don't think about that when they're filling out a form. They think they're just filling out a form, just like the passport form. But if the information does not jive, even, you know, we were just talking between two financial statements, but even within the financial statement, then, then there's going to be a huge credibility gap and a trust gap, which will increase the arguments and not reach uh, where you're fighting over. Think about it. You're fighting over the process. You're not fighting over the conclusion. You're fighting over how am I supposed to get the information to make a conclusion? And it's like literally spinning your wheels. It's kind of sad, actually. <laughs> and you can, you can end those disclosure nightmares at the disclosure clinic. How is that for advertising? Uh, folks, uh, 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 before I forget, the Disclosure Clinic is disclosureclinic.ca, and I will include the website address in the show notes as usual. Uh, Shmuel, this is a lot of very useful information with practical examples. I very much appreciate your taking the time 
you clearly thought through a lot of these issues in preparation for this podcast, and that will make what we're talking about even more useful to my listeners. So are there some takeaways? I'd like us to, I'm, I'm inviting you to give us some brief takeaways, and perhaps you can tie them up with a bow given the time of year. You know, AJ, I like to try to approach this issue from a positive, not scaremongering perspective. In other words, it's very easy for me to go that route and say, yeah, avoid getting your income imputed, avoid getting, you know, the the fight with your your spouse um, over disclosure. But if, if I were to reflect it positively, I would say the following. Financial disclosure is actually an opportunity to build. You can build trust. You can build credibility. And and frankly, you can build your legal case. In other words, if you want something, ask for it nicely. <laughs> you might just get it. On the and on the flip side, if you if you believe that not providing financial disclosure will get your the result that you are looking for, there's actually a term for that. It's called passive aggressive. And you can Google it. Like you should actually Google that concept of being aggressive passively by not providing something you you too are doing something you are with you're not providing is actually providing information right in other words you are providing the information that you want to make this a difficult process that you cannot be trusted that that is information that you are providing it's like you are permeating that information without even realizing it. And the other positive thing I would like to leave uh, listeners with is that financial disclosure ultimately is in your control. You have that control. So use it. Like that's, that's very powerful. You are not the, uh, at the dependency of your spouse or, and obviously you're going through a, a tricky situation in your life, but you have some control, a pocket of it called, I am going to provide my disclosure. Um, because many, 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 and I could repeat the word many, clients go to a lawyer and say, go after my spouse for his or her disclosure. And they show up in front of a judge, to, just to use that as the analogy, and the judge looks at the other side and says, where's your disclosure? And, and your client's there smirking, haha, we got him. And then the judge turns to your side and says, where's your disclosure? And you're like, uh, but, uh, 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 right? Like flat-footed. And how, how often does, has that happened in the course of many a family court or sort of family law files, even in mediation? So think about what you don't have from the other side, but, but more importantly, think about what you need to provide to prove your case. Um, you will have a much healthier process to get through and isn't that what this is all about it's getting through a process it's not making the process the end (laughs) a a great summary a great summary on a on a positive note i appreciate that and you and i are both in tune uh in identifying how difficult a separation can be emotionally and keys to get to the end and do it in a in a sane way, cost-effective way, if possible, with as little uh, damage along the way. Shmuel, we've come to the end of this part of our interview. And if you've heard my other interviews, you know that I 
always talk with my guests about food. So I'm going to ask you three questions about, yes, you guessed it, food. What is your favorite food or cuisine? You know, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> I, I like my comfort food. I, I am not very adventurous. And so if I were to say my favorite food is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I have no expectations, Shmuel. This is not about me. This is about you. If you like peanut butter and jelly, that's absolutely terrific. I like mashed potatoes. They're my kryptonite. What can I say? That's my, no that's my number two. Is it? Absolutely. But uh, peanut butter and jelly, if you think about it, the peanut butter is salt and the jelly is sugar. And you put them together. It's perfect. Bananas? Bananas? That's that's the uh, excuse to say that it's healthy. Are there bananas in the sandwich, or was that your response to the bananas question? That was my response. <laughs> <laughs> and so my next question always is, why is this food special for you? And is it the comfort? Is it the, the is is it a memory from your childhood? What makes it special? Is it the sweetness and the saltiness, perhaps? I think it's just the simplicity of it. The package deal. Perfect. And a boost of energy from the peanut butter and the sugar, right? It's a roller coaster ride. Any favorite restaurants, Shmuel? Um, so I don't eat out that often with my family. And it's uh, my wife is actually a fantastic cook. And my daughter, who's 15, is a fantastic baker. So we are very self-sufficient. But if I were to give a shout out, um, I have a friend who has a sushi restaurant on Bathurst, just south of the 401. It's called Umami Sushi. And if you want high quality sushi, highly recommend it. Uh, I am a big fan of Asian food, so I will definitely uh, give it a try when it's a little safer to do so. Uh, Shmuel, thank you very much. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you had fun too. A lot of useful information uh, to my listeners. And I'm a big supporter of limited scope services. I'm a big supporter of the Disclosure Clinic. Uh, I think this is a great idea you had coming up with this concept. And it, it has the ability to help a lot of Ontarians navigate the disclosure piece. Uh, and Shmuel does it very well. I know that. I know Shmuel as a lawyer and as a mediator. So I, I recommend uh, the Disclosure Clinic to you all quite confidently. Thank you again, Shmuel. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.